Happy New Year to everyone as we return to our study in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. We've already covered the first two verses. Today, I will be focusing on verses 3 through 19, as you have heard. Um, I, I want to go back to one part of that verse, and I'll be going back through the, the entire section that I read. But in verse 15 of Revelation, chapter 11, we have these words. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Apart from the inclusion of that famous verse in the uh, Handel's Messiah, where many people know of it, the most significant thing about this, I think, is the tense of the verbs here that most people are quite willing to overlook of a dispensational orientation. The tense of the verb here, notice how it's translated. I think the old King James, it says, are become. The kingdoms of the world are become. The ESV has it, has become. Uh, Some other translations have it, are now. They they emphasize it even more, that the nature of this wording in the Greek text in which this was written is that this is something that's already taken place. And I don't know how anybody explains that away except by having their faulty theology trump a proper understanding of Scripture and the very clear meaning of the words. Well, at any rate, let's focus our attention now on this idea of bearing witness in an age of judgment. Last time when we started this study, as I mentioned, we were looking at the first two chapters. It taught us about the true temple or church of God as distinguished from the false or the counterfeit. And now as we move ahead, we find that these verses remain as important lessons for us, especially as it concerns the witness and faithfulness of God's people. So then, the first thing that we want to ask here, and probably the the more famous thing about these verses, are these two witnesses. Who are these two witnesses that are mentioned in these verses? Why? And what is the significance of there being two of them? And where should we go to find out why that number is important? Well, of course, the place we go is the Bible, the Older and New Testaments. I want you to listen to this verse from Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Wow, what do you, what do you know about that? Two witnesses testifying in a legal case. They shall not be put to death on the testimony of only one witness from the New King James. Now, that obviously has to do with a legal proceeding, with the enforcement of the death penalty in terms of God's law, a witness against someone who has been found found guilty of a capital crime. As I hope you've come to understand by now, and I think as is clear as the text on the page, Israel has been charged by God with committing adultery, And the Son of God is acting as the prosecuting attorney in a symbolic sense. He's taken up the scroll of the decree of God's judgment against Israel. And he has now broken all seven of the seals. And now here we learn that there are these two witnesses who testify against Israel in that day. This is one large legal proceeding from the standpoint of God's law. John is telling us here about two real-life witnesses who lived in Jerusalem at that time. 
So yeah, there's a symbolic reference to what's going on here, but there's a literal fulfillment. Apparently, they were two Christian prophets who remained inside the city of Jerusalem in the earliest days of the Roman attack on the city. Day and night, they testified against Israel about God's judgment coming against them for what they had done to the Messiah in the ultimate act of breaking covenant with Yahweh. Now, let us notice seven things that these verses tell us about those two witness martyrs. First, they are witnesses for Christ. Second, as I said, and as we see, there are two of them. Third, they had miraculous powers. Fourth, they are symbolically represented by two olive trees and two candlesticks. Fifth, they're wearing sackcloth. And that means their message is one of woe, of mourning, of sadness. Sixth, they die a violent death in Jerusalem and their bodies are desecrated. And then seventh, after three and a half days, they are resurrected and their bodies are taken into heaven. At least one Bible scholar has suggested that these two witnesses were James, the brother of Christ, and Peter, the apostle. I don't know about that, but we, we don't really know exactly who they were. But the point is, they were there. They testified concerning the things of God. Now, if you look at verse 5, the fire coming from their mouths, that is a symbolic way of referring to the preaching, the proclamation of God's law word of judgment. And in verse 6, They are given power, similar to that of Moses and Aaron, as they battled with the forces of darkness in Egypt in seeking the release of God's people in that context. Verse 7 shows that those two witnesses finished their testimony. They did all that God appointed for them to do as his witnesses against Israel. But now here I want you to look again at verse 7, the reading from the New King James Version this time. When they finish their testimony, notice the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now here is, as far as I can tell, the very first mention of a beast or the beast in the book of Revelation. That's another famous popular image from the book thanks to the wrongful ideas of the dispensationalist. John, the author of Revelation... He seems to expect his readers to understand who and what he means by the beast. That's not uncommon in in discourse. And this is another example of how this and many other prophetic writings are not written to us, but they are for us. And so if we don't know who this beast is, that's a fine example of the fact that those people probably did know. Uh, I've tried to come up with an analogy. Think of it this way. And let me see a show of hands here this morning. If I said to you, that man over there is a true sand lapper, S-A-N-D-L-A-P-P-E-R, a true sand lapper. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Well, a few of you would. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's because there is a certain commonality of understanding of terms and phrases here where we live in the state of South Carolina. A sand lapper is an old word to describe somebody from our state. You know, in North Carolina, they use the term tar heels. Uh, there, there are deep roots and, and meaning behind these various terms. But sand lapper is a, well, used to be a common phrase for a South Carolinian. Now, if you don't know anything about that background and, I, and you read he was a true sand lapper, you've either got to cough up some meaning on your own about what that is and probably get it wrong, or you've got to do some research and find out. 
John expected his readers and assumed his readers would know what he's talking about, as well he might, because the idea, the subject of the beast or a beast is a most familiar one in biblical history. For example, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve submitted themselves to the beast, a beast, the serpent, the Nakash, and they thus rebelled against God. We see a similar image in Daniel 4.33, referring to the evil king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Daniel 4.33, that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar, He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with dew, the dew of heaven, and his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So in other words, he took on the appearance of a beast, this evil king. In our Older Testament reading today from the book of Psalms, you heard of humanity's rebellion against God, and it's compared to the animals and the beasts of creation in their rebellion against man with the images of wild dogs and bulls and roaring lions. And other places in the Older Testament, the pagan nations were often compared to terrifying beasts who attack the Old Testament church of God, Israel. In the Bible, rebellion against God is often likened with behaving like a beast. Now, when we get to chapter 13, as we will, we will see how John brings together many of these Older Testament images to describe Rome and apostate Israel as the beast and the false prophet. Now here in verse 7, the beast, that is Satan, is said to arise from the bottomless pit, uh, literally says in the Greek, the abyss, A-B-Y-S-S, the abyss. Now that word, as it was used in biblical times, generally denoted the bottom of the ocean, the ocean floor and underneath it. So then John is seeing the beast crawl out from the abyss that lies beneath the waters of the earth. That is where, symbolically speaking, the devil and his demons are confined until their destruction at the return of Christ. And that is why, for example, think about this. You ever wondered about this story from Luke chapter chapter 8? You know, Christ cast the demons out of the, the, uh, the, the crazed man. And the demons begged Jesus to send him, send them into this herd of swine. And, you know, he does that. And what, does, what did the pigs do when the demon, demons possessed them? Well, the Bible says they rushed headlong over a cliff into a large body of water. Symbolically, they were heading back to their natural abode, the abyss, you see. If you don't know anything about the language of Scripture, if you're unconcerned about really knowing and drilling down and and thinking biblically, you, you go off on all these tangents about what these things mean, the two witnesses and the beast and all the rest of it, when it has profoundly biblical symbolism. So then the two witnesses are eventually murdered for their testimony about the Lord, and ultimately, that was the work of the devil, as are all attacks that seek to silence the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to look again at verse 8, and I'm going to read this from a couple of different translations Because this is one of these key verses that indicate to us very clearly, I believe, who who this book was written to, what it was written about, and, and the timing of it. Their body, I'm reading from the NIV this time, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, all right, that's one thing, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, that's a second thing, where also their Lord was crucified. The Revised Standard Version reads essentially the same, but it uses the term 
the great city, which is allegorically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. The New American Standard Bible, in verse 8, has it read, the, the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Now, friends, this very clearly locates these events in a particular city that is being compared to, symbolically, Sodom and Egypt. And it's only by the most ridiculous means of what I'll call hermeneutical yoga that anybody could come to any other conclusion than that this is about Jerusalem. Sodom and Egypt were the two most wicked nations, or among the two most wicked nations of the Older Testament, the two, among the two most worst enemies of the Old Testament church of God. So we don't have to guess where that city is. It's the place where the Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? He wasn't crucified in Tehran. He wasn't crucified at the United Nations. He wasn't crucified in Moscow, Russia. He was crucified in Jerusalem in A.D. 33, roughly. Remember that in the very first chapter of the book of Revelation, in verse 7, the theme of the entire book was given to us so that the readers of this book would have no doubt concerning about what it's speaking. Let me read it to you again. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Here again is another indicator. Who pierced him? The leaders of the Jews. In first century Jerusalem. And all the tribes of the land, a reference to the Israelites, will mourn because of him. Why would they mourn? Because of the judgment that would be unfolding. Jesus predicted it in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and this entire book of Revelation is about the unfolding of that covenant judgment. And brother, will they ever mourn because of it? Those who pierced him, an obvious reference to the crucifixion of Christ and those responsible for it. At the beginning, the Lord announces that this whole thing is about his coming in judgment, coming with quotes around it, upon the great city of Jerusalem. I want you to recall that a few weeks ago I told you that many Bible scholars agree that this chapter 11 of the book of Revelation is one of the most important and one of the more difficult to understand in the book. And I think these verses, 9 through 13, are, excuse me, 18, are a prime example of that. And what's happening in, say, verses 9 through 12 is that John is going back and forth between the literal and the symbolic. He's using something that literally has taken place from our vantage point in the first century, Jerusalem, as sort of a metaphor of what was going to be happening or would happen to the church of Jesus Christ. Two witnesses... They're finally executed for their faith, and their bodies are put on display for all the people to have a really good look at. At first, there was great rejoicing over their death. The devil was having a field day, so to speak. And that calls to mind what happened when our Lord Jesus was put to death, doesn't it? The devil and all of his demons must have had a big party, thinking they had finally dealt the, the death blow to God Almighty. And we know from what the New Testament itself tells us that the two main instruments Satan used in that day, the leaders of the Jews and the Romans, they gave themselves a big pat on the back when they thought they had finally rid themselves of this pesky Jesus of Nazareth. I want you to listen to what we're told happened once Jesus had been arrested. This is from Luke chapter 23. I'm reading from the NIV this time. Then Herod, and, and by the way, he represents apostate Old Covenant Israel, and his soldiers 
ridiculed and mocked Jesus, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate, who represents pagan God-hating Rome, by the way. But the key thing here I want you to hear is verse 12. After the, the, the leaders, uh, after Herod has done this, he sends him back to Pilate. Verse 12 says, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Here in Revelation 11, the two witnesses at this point, they become symbols for the whole church. The church that was and had been and would continue to be severely persecuted by the Jews and then by the Romans. And there were several occasions, and the death of those two witnesses was one of them, where the enemies of Christ thought they had finally put down and destroyed his church, which is the new Israel of God. But time and again, throughout the history of this world, without fail, the church of Jesus Christ has risen from being downtrodden, if not from the grave, only to grow stronger and more powerful. Our current oligarchs and evil humanistic leaders who would dominate the world with their anti-God, anti-biblical plans, they haven't learned this lesson. They never do. I mean, all you have to do is read what happened in the history of Rome. But yet, starting from the early first century right to the 21st century, these people, they never learn. You can name all the dictators of the 20th century, the 17th, the 8th, all of them. In one form or another, they try to persecute and destroy the witness and testimony of Christ Jesus and his church. And now they are rotting in the dust, but the church remains. Now let's look at the last two verses of this section today and see the outcome. Verses 13 and 14. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So in the order of events that led up to the final destruction and fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, there were, as recorded by the eyewitness accounts of Josephus, many horrifying and awful events that took place in the city. Historical records tell us that there were violent storms and great, at least one great earthquake that shook the city in the early stages of the Jewish revolt against Rome. And as a result of that, according to the estimates, 8,000 people died. Now that could be, in some sense, likened unto a tenth of the city because the worst of it was yet to come for them. And verse 14 refers to the second woe being now past. Those woes referred to the unleashing of a full-scale demonic attack on the city of Jerusalem and the first stages of the Roman assault on the city. Here John gives an ominous warning about yet another third woe that was yet to come. And thus we have the testimony of the two witnesses in a time of persecution and judgment. So maybe at this point, let's get off the interpretation roller coaster for a moment. And let's step back and let's ask ourselves, okay, if this is written for us, what are we supposed to take away from it? I I think at least some of that has been evident as we have gone through the section verse by verse, more or less. We see that in the first two verses, it focuses on the true identity of the church uh, and the security of the church, those who are the real true members of the church of Jesus Christ. For us today, we see that the focus has shifted to the witness and faithfulness of the true church in a time of judgment and persecution. My friends, sooner or later, 
If you endeavor to live your life for Christ and God's law, you will find the world system, the culture that surrounds you, is a very hostile world system. It is antagonistic to the things of Christ and to all who take seriously his call upon their lives. And as a follower of Jesus, it is our constant task to bear witness for him, to testify to the truth of his kingdom and the law of God. If you will look back at verse 3, you'll see there those two witnesses were called of God to prophesy. And the word translated prophesy is a Greek term uh, from which we get the terms preach or proclaim or to set forth a message. That is the calling of every Christian. This is how it's written for us. We too are to prophesy and set forth the message. The question is, are we bearing witness today? Are we standing for the testimony and the word of God? I heard a story about a pastor who was in his front yard building a latticework frame for the climbing vine in his garden. He was working. He noticed a little boy had come up beside him, maybe seven or eight-year-old boy. He started watching him. Well, the little boy just stood there, didn't say a word, so the pastor ignored him, thinking that he would soon walk away. But he didn't. He just continued to stand there and watch with great intensity. So the, the pastor finally turned to him and said, Well, son, are you trying to pick up some good pointers about gardening? And the little boy said, no, sir, I'm just waiting to hear what a pastor says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. You see, friends, how we live, what we say and do are a witness to all those around us. And whether we like it or not, we are constantly bearing witness to those things that are really the most important things in our lives. And be assured, our witness is speaking loud and clear to our neighbors to our co-workers, our fellow students, our wives, our husbands, our children, and our parents. But I think our problem today, your problem, my problem, is that too many of our friends and neighbors and co-workers, they don't know what we stand for. Oh, they may have an idea when we opine on the big ticket issues of the day. But if our life as followers of Christ stand out to the world then it should mark us as very different. We should be like a zebra in a herd of white horses. When, you, when your life is indistinguishable and identical to, to those of all of your non-Christian friends, then you're, in effect, turned yourself into an albino zebra. You know, there's a lot of controversy about whether such a thing exists. I've seen pictures of it, but an albino zebra is really a zebra. It's identical to those others on the inside in terms of his biological makeup. But to look at him, an albino zebra looks just like all the other horses in the herd. But if you're a follower of Christ Jesus today, you aren't supposed to be running with the herd of the fallen world system. I heard about a woman some years ago who made a trip to England and she stayed at a nice bed and breakfast in the village of Dover. One day she was sitting on a sidewalk cafe in the village when all at once she she felt as if she were surrounded by thousands of flowers. Now, she felt that way because a wonderful aroma drifted through the streets of the village. And so she asked the cafe owner, where where is that wonderful aroma, that smell coming from? Well, he explained to her 
that there was a perfume factory just up the road from the tavern and that many of the townspeople worked there. And they carried that aroma with them as they came home from their work at the end of the day. My friends, as followers of Jesus, we are to carry the sweet aroma of Christ and the message of his kingdom wherever we go. We are to spread the good news of salvation as widely as possible as we travel throughout this world and as we bear witness in the age of judgment in our time. By God's grace, let us do so. Amen. Let us pray.